A sip of lime cordial. A sip of und- undiluted lime cordial with salt. Um, <laughs> this is this is hello everyone. This is Kino Kingdom forty eight, and uh, hope everyone's New Year's off to a, a good start and everyone had an awesome Christmas. Um, there's I, I thought coming into this that I'd only seen about three or four films, but upon checking my letterbox, I realised that I've actually seen quite a few and I've turned a couple off as well. <laughs> Let me tell you about that. I, mean, I don't count ones that were watched in the same room as me, like Single All The Way. Whew. Wow. Honestly, is, that a, just, is that a Christmas rom-com? It is a rom-com about a gay man who lives in the city getting his best friend to pretend he's his boyfriend uh, so he can go back and try to convince his family that he's uh, in a relationship because he's always single. Right. I just, it's, I, it's mm. so gentle. It was so gentle. It was like, it was like, like a, a, a cat twist stroking on the your bird face. Case kind of idea. Right. Okay. <sighs> so, uh, yeah, but the, I mean, at least I think I, with that in the same room, I made it through it. I didn't watch it per se. The other two films, I didn't make it through. I, I actively turned off. And just before we came on, we were talking about this, about how time seems more precious now. And I, I just think that th- there's certain films, and it's it's the budget as well. If I'm watching a film that's low budget and I think it'd be interesting or fun to talk about, I look at you, Godfrey Ho, Wicked, you know, they can sometimes be the highlight of my week. But then sometimes you're watching films and you just think, when when there's a budget behind it, a certain level, like for I'll just the, to the two films I turned off that I'll talk about briefly later on is the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard and Bloodshot with Vin Diesel, and I just thought, no, no, I'm not I'm not watching this. This feels like it doesn't so, deserve my time. Are you saying that they they got a certain level of production values where it's like, well, sorry, but you've got to do better with that that behind that think, kind of level of production behind it. I think with Bloodshot, I think it's just an. Ex- I do think it's an extremely bad sci-fi film. I think it's just oh, really, it sure. re- really um, kind of like um, was it The Infinite? Uh, watched a couple of weeks ago, or months ago now, with Mark Wilber, where it's just constantly explaining itself, and it's a film that thinks it's far cleverer than it is, and it keeps on showing the same footage over and over as part of the plot. And I just thought, no, I'm, I'm, I'm bored. I'm bored of this. But The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard was a different kettle of fish because with that. <clears throat> With that, what happened was I just thought I'm fed up of looking at Ryan Reynolds. I'm fed up of him playing the same character. And this sort of smarmy, sarky, like wink at the camera thing, I, I hit my limit with it uh, for, for the moment. And there was even a scene at the start where he's wearing, he wears pretty much the same clothes in every film. There's a scene at the start of this where he's got walking to a beach and he's wearing the exact same clothes he wears throughout Free Guy, like um, beige kind of tight khakis and then like a really fitted light blue powder blue shirt. Mm. I thought, God, not only are you just acting the same in every film, you're dressing the same in every film now. Jeez. Well, so Red Notice is one film I would have turned off if I hadn't been watching it with my parents. So, Well, this is the thing. I mean, I made it through that. And the thing is, I let, and, you know, like I'm going to talk about the Die Hard series later on. I like Samuel L. Jackson. He's someone, you know, when he's in a film, <clears throat> you get a certain amount of entertainment out of it because because he is a, he is a funny guy, you know, and he's, he's just got like, he's got charisma. Um, but with... With Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, I just, it was so, like, loud. And you've got Ryan Reynolds just winking at the camera all the time. Sam Hayek just, like, shouting and swearing. And then and then Sam L. Jackson doing his thing. And I just thought, oh, I just feel like I'm just being shouted at. And I just, I wasn't in the mood for it at all. I mean, the first one was was amusing, because like, I love buddy comedies. 
but this one is just this is just the sequel that shouldn't be and it's just all the things a sequel it tries to be bigger and bolder and brasher and it just comes across as forced and irritating um so yeah on the subject of samuel l jackson and on the subject of films that one might turn off halfway through um (laughs) just check out the protege on um amazon prime if you can really that's all i'm gonna say okay uh, and this is a film which not only has samuel l jackson but also michael keaton so i it's like mathematically not possible to turn off and yet somehow, <laughs> um, I, I think it. i think this was suggested to me actually um because i noticed michael keaton was in it and i thought oh, okay but again i just i don't know i think i i haven't had it for a while that i'm aware of but there's sort of just well, you get tired of actors i I don't know it just seems i really feel like i've hit a limit with with ryan reynolds well so, uh, yeah and it doesn't really help when they are just doing the same character over again over and over again i i i got burned out on chris pratt pretty quickly to be honest i mean i think ryan reynolds has taken longer but there will come a time when i'm like okay now you have to do something else you have to but i i just think that i was with deadpool i thought you know the last time i heard of ryan reynolds really he was in what was it, the Nas- national lampoons like what was it called that um Oh, oh God. Unfunny film? Van Wilder. He was in Van Wilder. Oh. And then, of course, he was in a few other bits and pieces. And he was in Deadpool, and I like the Deadpool films. And then and then watching this and Red Notice and the other ones. And in this in this film, not only is he wearing the clothes he wore in Free Guy at one point, um, he also, they, they talk about Red Notices. So it's like he's got this weird, like, metaverse going on just for Ryan Reynolds, just so he can just play the same mm. person over and over again. Wow. But so so before we go into um, before we go into the the whole the the film action, the Arkansas. Um, uh, this was this was really interesting. I actually really enjoyed how this panned out because um, we got a couple of two steppers, <sighs> which is amazing. Two two steppers. I was really uh, wow. really impressed with. So um, have you you've done it? I guess I have done it. It was. Uh... Lou Diamond Phillips to Emily Blunt, is that correct? Yeah, or, or vice versa, obviously. I, so I hope that's sh- correct. Shall I do the, done. Shall I do the, it was actually it was actually Kiefer Sutherland to Keith Chagwin. <laughs> uh, but you had to go via Martina Navratilova. <laughs> um so that'd be tough, that would. Uh shall I do the audience runs first yeah, before absolutely. before yours? So well, I've already lost. I know that. <laughs> okay, yeah, I shouldn't have said there was. I was just really impressed because I had a two-stepper sent in, and then I had a, a, a like a two-stepper another way, a really interesting way. So, um, so this one is off. Oh, hang on. This is off. Oh, sorry, I've just um just deleted the internet. Just deleted it. No, I'm just trying to find the the names uh, that the. Oh, here we go. So. We had this from Tom Holland's Velcro Spoo Flap. Lou Diamond Phillips was in Young Guns with Kiefer Sutherland, who was in A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise, who was in Edge of Tomorrow with Emily Blunt. That's three steps. We had Laszlo Buckets came in with Here's My Arkansas Answer, which I suspect others will have too. Lou Diamond Phillips was in Young Guns with Emilio Estevez, who was in Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise, who was in Edge of Tomorrow with The Bluntmeister. And... 
I'll leave the the surprising one to last because I, I had to kind of I had to actually check it. Um, Utah Smith came in with Lou Diamond Phillips is in Cop and a Half Two with Wallace Shawn, who is in wow. Animal, Animal Crackers with Emily Blunt, and he said I would not get that if I didn't have kids. Um, <laughs> and Transvaal came in uh, and said Emily Blunt is in Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise who has an uncredited cameo for mere seconds in Young Guns. What? Yep. And the only reason he knew that was because I mentioned watching Young Guns 2 in one of the previous podcasts, and he was sort of just idly flicking through all the trivia. So when I mentioned it, like at the end of that episode or the next week, whenever it was, it was fresh in his mind. He was like, oh, that's an interesting bit of trivia, and it happened to help out with this. That is astonishing. That is absolutely amazing. When (laughs) when was Young Guns made? I think the first... I think, yeah, was the first, second was 1990. The first one looked oh. like 88 or something like oh, that. Oh, 88, yeah. Well, so that means, yeah. I mean, Cruz would have done a few things. We would have done Top Gun and stuff like that, but then, but okay. Fair enough. I don't know if he was talking to the director on set or something. And he just said he wanted to be a cowboy. And apparently, you, you can kind of see it if you freeze frame. He's just some dude that gets shot in the lineup really quickly. Okay. Okay. So, well, well done, everyone. Well done, audience. I think mine was very similar to a lot of people's, to be honest. Uh, uh, mine was uh, Lou Diamond Phillips is in Young Guns 2 with Christian Slater who's in Interview with a Vampire with Tom Cruise is in Edge of Tomorrow with Emily Blunt nice no that's this cool I mean it, it, I liked how people took different paths and and mm. I, I I like the I, I, Sean one was astonishing that's amazing both yeah. the two steppers were astonishing really yeah because I mean like, Wallace Shawn it just tickled me that like first thought I, I got to think about Wallace Shawn which was nice but then it was just the thought of the, the two like voiceovers in children's animated films on both sides of the link. Fantastic stuff. But with Wallace Shawn's voice, I can very much imagine he has a, quite a yeah uh, a rich voiceover career. Um, um, yeah, and and I think with um, when it comes to yeah when you have kids, you do get to know animated movies and every detail about them in. Re- in ridiculous, meticulous detail. So it's understandable. So um, I'm assuming you've got more than me because I've got like one, well, one, two, three. I've got four or five, really. So I've got 10 or 11. Yeah, um, go on, then I'll let you hoof off. And, uh, well, a lot, they're pretty much all new as well because I thought, mm-hmm. like, let's watch some actual new films which might genuinely be useful to people who are thinking about watching some of the stuff that Amazon and Netflix are chucking at us constantly. Um, So I will talk first about a film called Encounter, which is on Prime. Uh, It's Prime Original, in fact. I say Prime Original. I don't know what that really means. I think it means they just buy it up. Buy up the exclusivity. (laughs) But yeah, it's... um, it's made it's released this year it's um sorry last year end of last year um it's a low budget sci-fi thriller thing from michael pierce who i assume is a newcomer not heard of him um and it starts with a meteorite landing uh and then a mosquito bites riz ahmed who is an army vet uh and basically there's some kind of space virus which is spread by insects um so riz ahmed is his character is estranged from his kids and i think i think your phone may be near your laptop or something i can hear buzzing sorry just oh buzzing eh let's move that away 
Yeah. Yeah. Those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Riz Ahmed, he's estranged from his kids. He is apparently running secret missions to protect humanity from this invasion. Um, now, his ex has a new partner and uh, who helps look after the kids. But then Riz Ahmed sneaks into the house and takes the kids away and then he's on the run. Um, and then soon after leaving, there's an encounter with a cop, which goes all wrong. And then there's this road trip. It turns into a kind of road trip movie with his kids and also a chase movie. Um, and basically it's like Riz Ahmed explained to his kids about the this uh, global infection and him and the kids basically side-eyeing people because they think they might be infected. Um, and at the same time, avoiding the authorities. Is it quite clear when someone's infected then? Um well, it's all a bit paranoid, so I think it's that kind of a movie. Um, but there are moments of sudden kind of explosive violence, and then they have to run to the next, like, gas station or whatever. Um, right, so I had a guess at the twist in this after five minutes, and I was right at the end. So, okay, so that's not a good sign because I'm rubbish at finding out twists, but there you go. Um there is Octavia Spencer's also in this film as his parole officer. Um, and she makes some pretty wild leaps in psychological logic to get to the truth of what's happening here with outrageous accuracy. Like the FBI are literally after him and she's just hanging around going, well, I think this, ha- this is happening. And they're like, oh, yeah. And it's like, hmm, I don't know. She's just literally a parole officer. I, I don't know. She seems very, very like uh expert in um like the deepest psychology of this man but anyway uh there's the trouble is with this film is there's no real tension because it's so obvious what's going on from the start and it it delineates the good guys and bad guys so cleanly all the time so there's no real tension in it at any point um and there's a possible twist in the movie and this becomes apparent pretty early on but it's one of those 50 50 ones where the twist could go either way and the problem is that whichever direction the film goes either way the twist is obvious and hackneyed so Uh so either way it's it distracts you from what could have been quite an affecting story about this guy desperately trying to build a relationship with his kids but you know you're destined for a bad twist (laughs) and you've guessed it either way anyway so um yeah, everything that happens on the road trip is stuff we've seen before in this kind of movie. You know, like they'll encounter like an angry farmer uh, that he, he teaches the older kid how to drive. And, you know, that's going to come up later. Um, there are tense, mo- tense moments at gas stations where it's like, oh, are they going to call the cops? And and then you get the crazy Second Amendment folk and all that kind of stuff. So and yeah. And, and then there's this climactic encounter, which makes no sense whatsoever um because you know and the climax should be a kind of culmination of all the experiences thus far but it's just completely inconsistent with the main character so it doesn't make sense and the film goes out of its way to present him in a certain light so there's next to no moral ambiguity in the whole thing and that was and it made me think of what made say a classic road movie like Thelma and Louise, such a good movie, right? Because it's basically the same idea that they're on the run, but you're kind of rooting for them sort of thing. 
the reason that was such a good movie is is because it had that moral ambiguity about whether they were good guys or bad guys sort of thing and paradoxically that's what makes this such a boring and predictable movie and it's such a pity because Riz Ahmed is obviously amazing and everything and he's great again but it's just not a good script it's not enough no sorry encounter is not very good that worth so. encountering it's not worth encountering is it yeah, i'm trying to say no. it's not worth encountering on amazon prime no. yes. um well i'm gonna talk about then another one that was a bit of a letdown and that was <laughs> i say a bit of a letdown did i have expectations at all uh that's bad boys for life <laughs> which this is I'll, interesting because i'm also going to talk about this one today oh nice okay. fascinating to know what your thoughts well, on this I suppose my personal background on it, um, I mean, everyone knows what the Bad Boys films from like 95 and I think the other one was like 2003. And then this is the third one. And quite frankly, hopefully final installment, because I think I've got a feeling that maybe like a year or a year and a half ago on this very podcast, I talked about Bad Boys 2. I think I revisited them last Christmas or something. And I remember watching them a lot. It's one of those films that I watched a lot as a teenager. And I was when the third one came out, I was initially really excited. I think it came out in like 2019 or something like that. Um, 2020. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like two years ago-ish. And I was quite excited about it. And then I sort of thought, why am I excited about it again? And I thought back and I thought, I may as well watch the other ones. And, and I remember the, the, they're fine. They're, re, they're like, the first one is good. And the second one is kind of okay-ish from what I remember. And I thought, this seems like it could be quite depressing. And <clears throat> what I found about the film was just the whole thing was just quite sad um that it was just got constant scenes of will smith just like in this like palatial apartment just looking out over miami and and the, the reasons for them doing things i mean like the, the the whole plot is that they're doing the usual thing and um marcus Burnett, played by um Martin Lawrence wants to wants to retire like he's been wanting to do for like three films now, much like Danny Glover in the Lethal Weapon films. <laughs> and it just boils into Will Smith just being incredibly selfish and just wanting this, you know, this cowboy taking on the bad guy's lifestyle. Um, and Will Smith gets shot in the quite seriously in the chest and almost dies. And yeah, he really he, takes it. He really has a bad time uh, to a point where I thought, is he going to die? Is that going to be like the twist? Um, and um bad boy and, for life <laughs> and then f- from that injury um martin lawrence turns turns to god and says you know if, if you let glenn pull through this I, I swear to god i will you know turn my back on violence and i retire which is what he does and the problem is that it's like these these people these partners who have been friends and like saved each other's lives and been through everything with each other will smith just wants to go on this sort of this re- this revenge uh, mission against the person that shot him and Martin Lawrence just wants to spend time with his family the problem is every single time we see and Mark, Martin Lawrence is clearly right like just let's just stop let's, especially because he next to Will Smith it's quite clear that Martin Lawrence has moved slightly nearer a Greg's and it's not referenced in the film they tease each other the whole film but he doesn't say you've actually put on weight <laughs> on your face and your neck quite poorly like like when you get out of a car i could hear you breathing really heavily um and but the problem is that whenever we see martin lawrence with his home life it's just shit like it's made out that it's just like he's in a like a loveless marriage and 
he's like the butt of jokes with his kids and he just sort of sits around bored and so you think well you may you may as well get back to it really because you're you're just bored aren't you it, it would have made more sense to paint his home life as really stable and really rich uh so then you would you would get emotion involved and think oh you're dragging it back into this if something happens to him you know you're gonna but he's just like basically a bloke hanging around like with his wife hoovers around him while he watches tv so like that whole drama just falls on its ass and then i just yeah, that was Wilson... a missed opportunity wasn't it yeah so a bit of lethal weapon-esque kind of well here's a home life and you've really got something to live for yeah so don't go back out there so and i just found yeah will smith just really found him he's obviously he's a good action star but in this i just thought he just came across just a bit of a prick and there's there's a team of people in there called ammo and it's these it's like a, a couple of guys and a woman a woman they obviously falls in love with and they've got this they're quite high tech and they're young and they keep on calling them grandpa and stuff and i almost blew my brains out because the first time will smith walked in you know they were like his sort of replacement partners in, in lieu of martin lawrence there's like a guy there just bouncing a basketball and spinning it on his finger and i thought you're at work you're at work in like high tech lab in, in like the man police department and you're like pissing around with a basketball and a vest and I and they they just have these really bad dialogues like oh well you young buck I'll kick your ass so what are you gonna do grandpa and then they just sort of then they're just mates in the next scene and you, it's just it's like the whole film is so breezy and just lazily directed it's like they just think oh it'll coast through on on their um their sort of camaraderie yeah. but it's so poorly written that it just people's motivations and the reasons for being there and the gr- awful green screen when they're driving around my god um yeah, and they're sitting yeah. there they're sitting there having like weak banter with like really bad cg miami like as, as the car's sort of gently rocking you think this is this is seems more dated than 1995 and um yeah uh, and then there's various twists in the plot that I, I just thought it got to the point where i wasn't even offended by the twists in the plot because i'd was so I lost so much interest by then, and it's a long film as well. Anyway, what did you think? I liked it. Mm. I liked this film, but maybe part of it is because I didn't watch the first two um, beforehand, and I and I haven't seen them since they came out. Pretty much. I mean, I have yeah. no real. I mean, I have a vague memory of them, like just a bit of banter, a lot of like really over-the-top action from michael bay i remember that stuff this one's directed by these two guys adil and bilal and they seem to be two very trendy young directors they're making batgirl movie i think it's a movie okay. and they're also after that they're making beverly hills cop for i just don't think i just don't think they'll ever get made <laughs> i kind of hope it won't to be honest because Beverly Hills Cop 3 was not a good film. But then I suppose they're probably not going to wheel John Landis out again anyway, were they? Um, I saw yeah. they get t- tagged back on the scene with Judd Reinhold. I don't care. <laughs> I didn't care if Eddie Murphy's not in it. I kind of liked some of the things that you didn't like about this, maybe. Like the... Okay. I like the I like the depiction of Miami. I thought it was very... I I, thought, I loved all the neon... Oh, that, yeah. Uh, it looks it looks great. The sort of swooping crazy yeah, shots. And yeah, the that's, that's the stuff I like. His, 
apartment is preposterous. Like, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> it's like, really? Would you? It's like a that? it's like a three story penthouse in the highest building in Miami. And of course, when you see him, he's just standing there with like, these baggy trousers, like blowing in the wind, just looking out over it. And yeah. I thought, there's one I moment. And he and there's one moment where he's silhouetted alongside Martin Lawrence, who's in profile, and you're thinking well, that's not the best angle for him in his shape, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> I did, and I did, yeah. There was a certain touch of the Lethal Weapon about it in the way that they're kind of well, the whole thing is really we're too old for this shit, really, isn't it? But I know what you mean about the Martin Lawrence character, like there, because it sets up this kind of quite simple dynamic of Martin Lawrence wanting wanting to get on with his family life and will smith basically having nothing to live for except for his job so that was fair enough but it didn't i know what you mean it didn't really give enough of a reason for martin lawrence to want to stay with his family because clearly there was nothing much going on there although i did like the scene where it cross cuts between like will smith putting on a really really trendy jacket and and putting on his sunglasses and walking out the door into onto the street and it keeps cross cutting with um Martin Lawrence at home, like sweeping his um, his like dressing gown on and then putting on his reading glasses instead. I thought that was quite a nice little touch. But uh, yeah, and I thought the tonal balance was pretty good between like the humour and the pathos and the violent action. It was surprisingly violent for a film of its type. You'd think that they would reboot it as this kind of 12A type thing, but no, it was actually pretty nasty at times. Uh, I certainly think it had a better tonal balance than something like the aforementioned Red Notice anyway. But, um, and what else? And yes, the younger guys, the ammo agents, I thought that was going to piss me off more than it did because, but what I, the reason I think it didn't piss me off is because there's, there's no real suggestion they're going to upstage or succeed the bad boys. And it's also because the bad boys sort of get along with the younger guys and aren't just constantly whinging about how much better it was back in the day. It's like they do kind of learn to get along. So less annoying than it could have been. The script isn't the best in terms of the banter. I'll give I'll give it that. That's definitely true. But I, I enjoyed some of the action. I like the way that it ended up with a big mansion shootout. That was cool. And I, and I quite like the twist towards the end. I thought it gave it a bit of an operatic quality in the end. So... I think I quite liked it. I probably more than the second one because I remember being irritated by the second one. But maybe that's just because of that time in my life it wasn't quite aimed at me because the original was like proper that came out when I was like 15 or something so it was perfect for me. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean they, these movies are not they haven't got the kind of uh depth of character of the lethal weapon films which we've talked about before and how they're all good (laughs) um yeah i i think i liked it more than you clearly oh definitely yeah i i don't even think that like from hearing what you said hearing thing lines like um the script isn't very good the banter isn't quite there and i wasn't as pissed off as i thought i would be (laughs) aren't aren't things that like oh maybe 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 i didn't see it in the right frame of mind Uh, yeah yeah. i'm thinking well it's probably just the low expectations plus as we'll discover the the type of movie i've been watching recently this was perhaps a good palate cleanser okay is this all about threads come and see and where the wind blows is it um 
Yeah, so that'd be a triple bell, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, come on, send me a pop cord. All right. Okay, yeah, so yeah, I'm so bad boys for life. You like you liked it. I, I I didn't. I would give it if I was marking that out of ten, it would have been like a five point five, I think. I'd say a six pushing towards seven. <laughs> yeah. Um okay, let's talk about one of the first depressing movies. Um <laughs> Yay, Merry oh, Christmas. Let's about the last duel on Disney Plus. This is oh, Rid- yeah, okay. This is Ridley Scott's lavish historical drama from last year you, sorry you've got your phone did you move your phone then no what's that i mean? don't know maybe it's maybe it's my uh headphone cable moving okay it just it sounded like you moved a phone near the microphone that was weird okay are we good yeah yeah sorry go on. um yeah so this this was the one that really scott thought flopped because gen z are on their mobile devices I don't think it's the devices that people are using. I think it's the subject and this subject matter and the setting. Uh, this is set in 14th century, so not an instantly recognisable period. It doesn't scream like Vikings or Romans or anything. And the subject matter is um, is interpersonal um, politics. It's interpersonal. It's, it's sexual politics. It's that kind of thing. I think if this had come out at the height of like the Me Too movement, I think it could have captured the zeitgeist a bit better but um i don't know i'm just how appealing is it to watch a really grim medieval story that mirrors our grim modern times i'm not sure so anyway the story concerns is it based on a true story apparently it concerns the rape of jodie comer's character who is the wife of matt damon it portrays the time leading up to and after the incident and it does it from three perspectives. So it does it from Matt Damon's perspective, as in the husband. It does it from the perspective of Adam Driver, who is the rapist, the accused rapist, um, uh, who's Matt Damon's friend and also a soldier. And finally, it does it from Jodie Comer's perspective itself. And and finally, you get we get the trial and then the last duel itself. So the idea behind the duel... I can't imagine trials in the 14th century were particularly fair. It's bonkers, actually. Like, it, I mean, if bonkers if true, and I'm assuming it's true, yeah. the idea behind the duel is that the duel will reveal God's judgment about what actually happened. So basically the idea is that if Matt Damon, the husband, loses, then the allegation must be evidently false. So, of course, then she would be making a false allegation... And then she would be burned alive. So <laughs> I guess in the absence of DNA evidence, this was the way they did it back then. But um, yeah, so that's that's the setup. Um, and so it's, it's essentially like a Rashomon type thing with the same terrible event perceived by three different characters. And by perceived, I don't mean the attack itself, but everything leading up to it and the aftermath and the conflicting truths therein and what's clever is that the the differences between each of the perceptions from the characters are are subtly different um for example in adam driver's version of events uh, he's obviously the accused when he goes to attack jodie coma he what he sees is her like running away from him essentially but it's as if she kicks off her shoes almost temptingly like behind her but in her version of events 
like she's running away in desperation and her shoes fall off because she's so terrified so it's stuff like that little things like that which is okay. it's, it's really quite clever um it's it, it the whole film looks amazing um it's got very naturalistic lighting and this and these gorgeous sort of cg augmented vistas um although i did find that the kind of perennial rain and utter grimness of it all did make it look a bit like monty python's holy grail at times but even more depressing than the weather i'd say is this depiction of this these macho competitive young men operating in a very patriarchal world um so damon's character matt damon's character is really fascinating because he's so like he's a warrior and he's so unflinching and brave in battle yet he's so emasculated in his in his private life he has this pathological need to control his wife and it's just kind of sad really she's his only real source of pride but she also ends up being a source of shame to him uh and his reaction to her assault is just grotesque um but the four main performances are really good so you've got Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, and also Ben Affleck. And they're all really good, even though you'd think that they were quite miscast, seeing as they're all playing English people. But, well, English or French? Not sure. But anyway, they all kind of, except for Comer, they all kind of sound a bit posh American, but it's not it's not too bad. Um, so it sounds like Kelsey Grammer then. <laughs> um, yeah, I, like, I think it was a bit, it was quite criticised, this film, for being too directly shoehorning in kind of modern me too type sensibilities into this ancient tale and there are moments where like it is a bit on the nose where ben affleck is giving adam driver advice like he says deny 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 like he's talking to bloody harvey weinstein or something but um but in the end i think the way that it depicts this all the, all the levels of society can kind of systematically expunge an allegation and wipe it from record is quite scarily convincing. And the misogyny running through everything is just unbelievable, like in government, in marriage, in the church, in medicine, like the doctor blames Jodie Comer's lack, uh, inability to get pregnant on her being cold and melancholy, apparently. And, and he, and because apparently back then they believed that you have to achieve orgasm in order to get pregnant. And so there's all this complete pseudoscience around it as well. It's so depressing. Anyway, so, yeah, that's all. Yeah, I, I thought it was I think it just about uh, I think it just about gets away with it in terms of, you know, seeing modern life through a 14th century lens. I thought it was a good film. It's uh it's long, but interesting. It's never, I'd never found it boring. Well acted, looks good. And yeah, quite thought provoking. So that was, oh, nice. so okay. that was excellent. Yeah. So the last jewel, Disney plus worth a watch. I do like Matt Damon and, and Ben Affleck. So, um, have you, speaking of Ben Affleck, um, <clears throat> I listened to like, um, ASMR and like relaxation tips every now and again from having trouble sleeping. And, yeah. and you know, obviously I fancy Matthew McConaughey who like owns the bar that everyone drinks in. And uh, and um, if, in fact, listening closely to David Strathairn going around, he wasn't actually saying wee wee. He was saying Matthew McConaughey. Um, and yeah, I was I was listening to it, and it's 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 an hour. It's on YouTube. If you type in Matthew McConaughey like um, relaxation or whatever. 
and it's just this like really artfully shot footage of him like just looking out of a window in a coffee shop with, in like New York or whatever, and just and every now and again his voiceover will come in, and it's it's really bizarre because I was like I wasn't going to watch it, but I, I just skipped through a few minutes. It's on for like an hour, and it's like um can I explain it? Like I skipped through a few minutes and it said, in the universe we are nothing but speck and i'm like oh it's quite relaxing skip forward again he's close your eyes and relax and i'm thinking yeah this is really nice and then i I skip forward a bit more and it's all this like twinkling starlight music and he said in a in a world of seven billion people they chose ben affleck to be batman and I thought it seems out of context with it's <laughs> an interesting observation. <laughs> it was really so okay. Um so yeah <laughs> just musing about that. Um so but yeah, I do fancy Matthew McConaughey. It was like honestly, it was a Joe, a killer Joe, mud, all good stuff. Um yeah, I I watched Don't Look Up. If we're going to talk about films with a bit of weight to them, I'm assuming you must have yep. seen this. Yeah, yep, seen this. Oh, good this is Sandy. Well, I well I I took the lead on Bad Boys for Life. So do you want to take the okay. lead on this one? Yeah, sure. This is a yeah. Don't Look Up. It's on Netflix. It's a satirical disaster movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, written and directed by Adam McKay. McKay. Um, it also has Meryl Streep, Timothy Chalamet, Ron Perlman. Mark Rylance mm-hmm. and Kate Blanchett. So it's quality cast. And um I didn't recognise Kate Blanchett till about an hour in, by the way. I know, it was it's I really didn't. That. Yeah. So um so it's it's two and a half hours long. It's a two and a half hour comedy film. So that's an interesting observation. Um the so these Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence are scientists and they discover a comet is hurtling towards Earth and it will strike in six months, destroying everything. So they approach the president, played by Meryl Streep, and she's grotesque uh, and narcissistic, and she doesn't take it seriously. And the film is about the scientist's attempt to get various people in power to act Um they do so by speaking to politicians and going on TV shows and appealing via social media and various responses occur, um, including an attempt to send Ron Perlman up there to blast it out the sky. Um, But then uh, but then a tech company swoops in um, led by Mark Rylance, who seems to have stepped off the set of Ready Player One and um, And they want to, they have another idea, which is to go up there and mine the asteroid for raw materials. They've seen Armageddon. <laughs> yes. And I've seen Armageddon. I will be talking about it. But it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a mess of a response all around. And so, yes. So who else have we got? We've got Kate uh, Blanchett plays this heavily Botox TV presenter. Jonah Hill is very unfunny as the pre- president's sort of Trump-like son. Timothy Chalamet plays a character. I don't even. I'm not actually sure why he's in the film at all. It's like a love interest for Jennifer Lawrence. Um, so, uh, yeah, I I thought this was a pretty bad movie, to be honest, all around. Uh, like I, I, Adam McKay, McKay, I don't know. And he has no interest in subtlety. Like every politician is a narcissist. Every TV presenter is a 
frivolous moron. Every tech person is like a sinister automation and every celebrity is just an airhead. And the moment to moment comedy involves putting these sort of mild mannered scientists in rooms with very mean spirited people, basically, who just say crass things to them. There's essentially one joke in the whole film, which is that the planet's about to be destroyed and everyone is willfully not taking it seriously. No one cares. And I, I get you, it. You've, you've, you've just said that that was exactly the problem I had. I thought it's like this thing. You basically, whatever the situation is, whatever location or whatever, whoever they're speaking to, it's always they, they're trying to get across that look, this is going to happen. Like the world is going to end. And then the other person just sort of laughs it off. And yes. two and a half hours of that. That, it gets a little bit wearing, and I get it. It's it's a climate change allegory, I suppose, but a very very laboured one, and some really heavy-handed mockery of um, of social media, for example. And then the twist is that social media is actually what it takes for the world to take it seriously. So, like, this is some kind of revelation, and and also, by the way, filmmakers still can't make social media montages interesting. They just haven't managed it, have they? Um, so Jennifer Lawrence's character is pretty stolid and detached. Uh, DiCaprio's character is quite neurotic from the start, and he gets a bit more manic as the movie goes on. But I don't think there's anything really what you call convincing character development exactly. Um, so, yeah, and you think about DiCaprio in something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he's neurotic and a bit crazy. And that was funny, but I don't think it's funny in this. I, 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 re- I rewatched that. I wasn't going to mention it, but I did rewatch yeah. that, and it, it's it, that is a film that stands up to multiple viewings. He is hilarious in that movie. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, um, it, it, and this this yes, don't look up. It kind of reminded me a bit of Melancholia, the Lars von Trier film, mm-hmm. uh, which was about uh, I think that was about an, a planet about to hit Earth, and that was. I mean, that was much darker than this, but it also had a kind of an amusing, much more subtle humour to it um, about the just impending apocalypse and the horror of it. Um, so I think I'd just recommend Melancholia instead of this, to be honest. I do find as well all of the, like you alluded to earlier on, the, the references to the, the, the Trump administration, you know, the way that Joan Hill picks up the water. Yeah. I think I, I find all that stuff more depressing than funny because, yeah. you, like, the thing is, it's it was sort of beyond satire, that man in that administration. Yeah. So when they're referencing it, it just seems really lazy. And I was quite surprised. I know, I've noticed, I didn't realise, but I apparently follow Leonardo DiCaprio on Twitter. And... He's obviously quite passionate about the message the film is putting across well, yeah. with, with climate change, and obviously he's using it and he's, he's you know, really, really pushing it and uh, trying to raise awareness and stuff, which is awesome. But it's just a shame he's got such a dodgy film to work from because it, mm. it, it, it just, yeah, the whole the whole Donald Trump thing didn't work for me. The one mm. joke we're gonna die, ha ha ha, was you can't get two and a half hours out of that. Yeah, I found Jonah Hill in particular really, really aggravating in this film because he was kind of the Trump character wasn't he i suppose um uh, yeah there was just and these these are such talented actors and then but there was no subtlety to it i I don't know i can it's almost like i can imagine a film which had this set up this structure this whole plot and yet had a a more a a subtler script a more nuanced script and i think it could be really good but because 
like there's a there's a scene where Ron Perlman is being shot into space and he's making this big speech to Earth sort of thing. But he's a very old school kind of guy. And so he's you and he he basically makes this speech where he applauds all the all the white folk he's left behind sort of thing. So it's obviously really, really racist sort of thing. And it's like and everyone's going, oh, you know, he's old school sort of thing. And it's like. Okay, that could have been funny if if it'd been more subtle. If they'd been more subtly, but it's like he's saying, "Oh, all you white people back on Earth, uh, you're all great. I'm going to miss you." And it's like, well, that's not funny anymore because it could have been amusing if he'd been if he'd used like like just the wrong term or something like that. Um, it's it's hard to explain, but every single line it seems is like they've taken. The, almost the raw material of the comedy and haven't haven't shaped it into something cleverer or more nuanced or indeed more satirical it's just a blunt instrument every line is such a blunt instrument it's like here's the trump guy you know here's the racist here's uh you know here's the narcissist and it's like okay we and this is going on for two and a half hours and we've been reminded of all of their kind of caricatures every single scene in the um, way possible. I, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I do think that one of the funniest bits in the film for me, it could because I love Ron Perlman, was just where it cuts to him and he's just in his garden, he's just like shooting at the meteor, yeah, yeah. just with machine guns and pistols, yeah, as if that's going to do anything. I'm just looking at Adam McKay's um, filmography now, and you've got Anchorman, which was which funny, and then Talladega Nights, The Bad Rookie Ball, which is. All right, Step Brothers, which is which is quite funny. The other guys, which is probably his best film, and there should have just been a sequel. The Campaign, which was tedious. Anchorman Two, which was tedious. Get Hard. Um, wrote Ant Man, The Big Short, and then, and then don't. I just think that's a hit and miss filmography. That is. It is, and you think about what. Which ones did you you mentioned Anchorman and there was another was Talladega Nights was the one the after that Step Brothers the other guys the campaign the other guys so probably Anchorman and the other guys are probably the best of the that bunch you think about what worked about them is that it was the complete lack of subtlety wasn't it like it was like it was so in your face and almost like almost like the the whole point of it was people saying really really sort of crass obvious things to each other in a really in-your-face way and but they weren't meant to be any kind of like satire on anything so that was fine it worked i don't they think just, he can do satire i think, no, I think yeah because look, looking at the other guys which is a film that i think universally everyone loves and it, it's just it's it's the buddy cop thing it's you're getting 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 two people in a situation like m- making something happen and then everyone works on a pretty tight script around it um yeah. But yeah, this was, um, I was just surprised. Like you said, I was surprised that of the talent involved. Yeah. Um, I, I thought surely these people would have had agents that would have just said this is, unless they're just so dedicated to, to the, 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 you know, the um, uh, the thrust of the economic message in it, the, sorry, yeah. the environmental message yeah. in it, that they wanted to be part of it, but I just can't, or they just expected it to be better. I don't know. Yeah, but it's a, uh... I mean, it's a big old price to play for one massive two and a half hour slice of virtue signaling. I just think, I think if there's, if you're going to satirize, especially satirize like the the state of the world right now, 
it's got to there's got to be some kind of believable element to it surely like the whole thing about Kate Blanchett's TV show and that it just doesn't look or feel like it they don't say things that would ever be said on those shows it's just so there's nothing believable about it so therefore it's not funny it's it's not satirical because I can't believe that anything like that would actually be said ever so, so that's not mm. a glowing review from us really is it no. It's not great. Don't look up is not the best. Don't look it uh, up. Don't, today. don't look it up on Netflix. Um, uh, all right. I'll, let me talk about Matrix Resurrections then. I'm excited about this one because I've seen. I saw this at cinema, and it is cinema only. I think in America you could see it on like HBO Max or something, but whatever. Here you cannot. So this is. Uh, obviously the the latest in the Matrix franchise. This one being directed by only one of the Wachowskis this time, Lana Wachowski. So the film actually starts off pretty promisingly as a kind of crazy meta comedy where Neo slash Thomas Anderson is uh, Keanu Reeves' character is a game designer and. It's the premise is, is that the Matrix trilogy, which came before it and, of course, finished in, what, 2003, the Matrix trilogy was uh, actually a game he'd created, and it's the creation he was most famous for. And the film goes to great lengths in this early section to mock franchises, movie franchises and pointless sequels. So it, it becomes very disappointing when the film dispenses pretty much with that metaverse idea and just really just turns it into a rehash of the first matrix at a very i'm not even going to try and explain the plot because it's so convoluted but at a very basic level and it is quite simple at the at bottom the very basic level the plot is about neo keanu Reeves being drawn back into the matrix in order to rescue trinity which is carrie Ann moss's character so that for this purpose a couple of key characters are recast um, like Lawrence Fishman's character, for example, for reasons I do not understand. And some new characters are introduced. Um, uh, there's one character called Bugs, who is, oh, oh, she's probably the most interesting new character. And she at least brings some energy to it, which is something which is severely lacking from Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss, who genuinely <laughs> look like they're sleepwalking through the whole thing. You also get Neil Patrick Harris, uh, who plays the analyst. Um, but that's really, he's really just a, a slightly sarcastic rehash of the architect character from the previous films. So the previous films, yes. I like the Matrix trilogy. And I know there's the general consensus is that the first one is great, groundbreaking, all that kind of stuff but it should have ended there. But I like all of them. Uh, and I, I think as a as a trilogy, they're quite clunky and very expositional at times, but they're fundamentally coherent. And I like how the series expands as it goes until it becomes this big, silly, epic sci-fi thing. And whatever you think of the direction and the manner of storytelling in the original trilogy, each film did have something to offer. Like the first on a surface level anyway like the first innovated in terms of the visual effects and the cyber noir style and the 360 degree camera action 
The second had one of the best action sequences I've ever seen in it. So that was great. And the third movie had this enormous Alamo style showdown, which felt like a true battle to the death. And it concluded the trilogy in a very definitive way. Spoiler alert, massive spoiler alert about the original trilogy, but it's almost 20 years old. Mm. Neo and Trinity both die at the end of that trilogy. So really it was very definitive. So, so given that, given the things, these amazing spectacle that you saw in the original trilogy, you come to Resurrections, which has this couple of bored looking middle-aged actors green screened against what looks like a deleted scene from World War Z. Uh, and and ge- genuinely throughout the film, the action scenes are downright bad in, in this film. They, 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 look, they don't have any of the choreography of the original for a start, but also the editing, especially during the fist fights, is a total mess. So that was surprising. Well, it's, it's not that it's not that overly quick editing again, is it? Please. Oh yeah, it's all that. It's all that kind of stuff. But also just the yeah, yeah. It's it's the editing and and like in something like Batman Begins or possibly one of the, one or two of the Bourne films, I don't think it's just the editing. Even it's something about the choice of shots, the decisions. I mean, it doesn't. It's not as bad as a Bourne film, but you know what they were trying to do with like the Bourne movies, where they'd be in a fight, and it wasn't like the editing and the camera work was designed. It, it wasn't there to show you what's happening, what what is being done by one person to another, which is really what an action scene should do. <laughs> it was there to give you a general sense of action, of chaos, of being in a fight, sort of thing, and it's it's kind of a return to that kind of editing and it just looks bad. So apparently I heard that Lana Wachowski actually dreamt up the idea for Matrix 4 in this malaise of grief over various family members dying, which kind of shoots down my theory, or I don't think it's my theory. I think other people have had this theory that she only signed on to do this movie so that no one else would. Which I thought was a pretty oh. solid theory because it would make sense of why it exists at all, but also why um, why it is so strange, as in why why it goes out of its way to mock franchises and the whole concept of pointless sequels, all this kind of stuff. Because I could almost see it as like a joke, a kind of joke movie, and actually the whole thing is just a joke on Warner Brothers or whatever, saying up yours you wanted me to make this movie so here's what you're going to get sort of thing but it sounds like she genuinely thought that this would be an interesting way to explore her own grief i guess um yeah um it's dull and whatever you think of the first three films they weren't that so yeah it's just pointless there's no point in watching this it's the crystal skull um which was fine. I, what I've seen the Crystal Skull is fine. Again, it doesn't need to exist. That's true. Yeah, but it's, it's fine. Yes. Which is yeah, you're not the right person to make that comment to. No. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, going back to the, I, I think I might rewatch the original Matrix films because, and it'll tie in with something I'm going to say about Die Hard is um, <clears throat> I watched well, I watched them obviously years apart, but I've never watched them together, and I don't often do it where you watch, you know, if there's a, a film that is three or four or five of them watching them over a day or two i don't really do it um because it seems like a massive investment of time <laughs> but with this podcast it kind of gives me a reason to do it to talk about it and like i said i'll talk about diet after this 
Um, but with Matrix, I remember really like really enjoying the first one because I, I genuinely felt like it was a I felt like I'd never seen anything like it. It felt like this right. fully yeah. fully realized universe that was I thought it, like I don't really use the term, but genuinely mind blowing at the time. And then the second one, I remember really really enjoying the fight scenes. And then the third one, when it got to all the sort of religious iconography, I I, I remember just thinking, and when was the th- well, actually two thousand three, so I would have been twenty, thinking, is this like whereas I liked the first one because it was just kind of cool, and the second one was just action packed and really tightly choreographed, which I really love and I've always loved. Yeah, the action scenes in the second one are amazing. I just thought the third one is this is this getting silly now? And I, and I think whereas you you know said you didn't mind that it, it got silly and, and whatever, yeah. I just I just remember I think I just thought well it, it's the scale thing, isn't it? I'm not a fan of of things of, of ridiculous scale, um, and but I think if I watch it now, understanding. Uh, understanding where it's going to go, I'd probably get a lot more out of it. So I probably will do that. Are they are they available on streaming services? The Matrix trilogy? No, I think I watched it on Sky Now. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so on a free trial. So I, I will. I when it makes its way to Disney, Netflix, or or Amazon Prime, I will clearly watch Matrix Resurrections. But I don't. I, I don't have any hope for it. If you know what I mean, and, and not that's the wrong term. I'm not as excited as if they say they were going to do like a sequel to Constantine or, you know, like John four, I'm looking forward to seeing. Yeah. But yeah, I, I will watch it, but um, it's... yeah, I, well, I definitely recommend revisiting the original trilogy. I, I mean, I, at the time I watched, I, mean, I didn't, I watched the first two, I think, and I didn't bother with the third one. So, um, but then watching them back to back, it, it's pretty coherent, and I think the the third one's always the most divisive one because that's where it gets so big and epic and mythic in its scope. But I kind of feel like it didn't have anywhere else to go except there, uh, and it does. It feels like it, it earns its way to that point, and it is very intense at the end. And yeah, there is a bit of religious iconography, but that's okay. I mean, it's like these are mythic themes. And what's more mythic than Jesus? <laughs> I do think at the time as well, when I was like late teens, early 20s, it's when I properly became comfortable with with understanding the fact that there's nothing beyond this earth. So I, I think I would have like been at the absolute pinnacle of my life of thinking, I can't be bothered for all this. Um, yeah, I'd probably be more, um, now that I'm a deeply religious Buddhist monk, I'd probably be more <laughs> open to it. Um, yeah. Moved on from the zenith of atheism. Yeah, it was a great acoustic album. Um, I, I do think it could have used more cajon, but um, I've um, yeah, I just want to. I like I said, I, I want to talk about Die Hard, but I just realised that, I, as you know, I watched a lot of Marvel films over Christmas period. Oh yeah. And and to be honest, they're so long ago now, and there's such there were so many of them, and they were so long that well, I just can't be bothered now to talk about them. So, <laughs> So just assume that I thought they were all seven out of ten. Okay. Um, apart from Doctor Strange, which I just wanted to mention, um, because yeah. it kind of summarized everything that everything that you and I have, have talked about about Marvel films, and not so much the Marvel films, little things in films that we that, that sort of irk us a bit. Um, yeah. So the, the, the Doctor Strange, uh, the plot is effectively that um, Doctor Stephen Strange is a tosser who is a neurosurgeon. And he's being a tosser and his car crashes and he knackers his hands and he 
uh, wastes his wealth trying to get them fixed through scientific medical methods and finds out from none other than who is it he goes to speak to and I thought is that is Benjamin Bratt isn't it so is that Benjamin Bratt I used to fancy you and I still do you still get do. in that bar get in the bar get in the bar um and uh, and yeah and so he finds out about this um this ancient Asian uh, house somewhere that if you, if you go to and they they let you in they can teach you the powers of magic and myth and so on uh, and that's where he goes and I just realized this, that this film was watched and I thought this is kind of everything that I dislike about about Marvel films because it's a film that clearly exists just to just to insert him into the into the the Marvel metaverse and it's full of people with really poorly defined powers and strengths uh, some of which just seem to exist just to show off um inception like building twisting like this yes. you no know? and, and then um and what got me is was he goes to this 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 house where this ancient place where people have spent you know artificial extended lifetimes trying to understand like even the most bare essentials of magic and i thought oh he's obviously going to be there and i bet he's going to think he's been there for like a few months but when he's going to come out like hundreds of years would have passed or whatever but then i thought well no that can't be right because it was modern like new york when he went in mm. so he just seems to become the most powerful sorcerer in a few weeks and it's never really explained why and and then you've got people like creating these making buildings twist around and pulling up portals and so whenever a fight kicks off i just thought well i don't know what, what everyone's like weaknesses limitations or abilities are so i've no i've no like you know i've got no what's the word like money on this if you know what i mean i don't care mm-hmm. what happens and yeah it was just a load of special effects and i thought it's just a load of like sort of dazzling special effects around mm-hmm. this like really perfunctory storyline that clearly exists just to just to set it up for whatever else you're going to do in the avengers films or whatever and i, I thought it was quite bad yeah, um, and full, uh, full of really weak characters as well. Surrounding quite an unlikable central character as well, really. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, Stephen I was, Strange. He's not. He's not particularly charming. In he's not like a charming rogue in the same way that like Iron Man is, for example. Yeah, like with them, um, and even when you see him in other films, because he's obviously like a, he's a, he's a tosser at the start, yeah. and then if you and obviously I didn't see this film till recently, but then when you see him in the other films like Thor Ragnarok, wherever when he pops up, he's still just quite smarmy and like okay, get out yes. of here now. Just, yes, so yeah, smarmy is, um, yeah, is the word. Yeah. So yeah, it just um, it just seemed like a really strange. It, it's it kind of ruined the other films for me in a way because of course the post credit scene of this. Is I th- again I'm probably going to mix up Thor Ragnarok where he turns up and he gives him a beer and then he yeah. tell he basically says just piss off sort of thing and I thought well whereas that was like mildly amusing when you're a side character seeing this film and and where it's expanded your actual character now, now I just like it even less so now whereas that you turn up and it's like oh yes that guy that you know that wizard now I just think oh yes that guy um so yeah it actually did the the inverse of what I assume Marvel would have hoped um. Wow. Yeah, so I just I was just that stood up as one of the one of the one of the worst Marvel films. I again and even at the end of the film, a little slight spoiler, well, a real spoiler. So if you want to watch Doctor Strange, don't don't listen to this. Skip forward like two minutes. But I don't know if you remember the end where he goes to that other planet and loops time, so mm. he just keeps on getting killed until the god gets sort of bored and just backs off and leaves him to it. That's effectively what happens. But he every time like Doctor Strange is killed, he just comes back and he's just like like laughing at it. And I thought this, so you're basically saying 
death is like you're not you're not frightened of the pain like if you were just in a time in a loop where you're in constant agony for for months surely your mind would just snap but in this it's just a joke um and it just i just thought is there any like weight to this universe is there any yeah anyone learn is there any character development at all anywhere that'd be great because um, really when you've got when you depicting powers at this level where it's about space and time it's always boring the one the only thing you've really got to make the drama interesting is the psychological element because really that's for example like superman for example like he's basically infinite powers so the interesting part is how he psychologically deals with that that responsibility etc and so if they're not even taking that seriously then what is there where's the drama there well, it's just like Michael Ben used to say, Rupert. It's with great power comes a large electricity bill. <laughs> he always used to say that. It bonkers. They locked him away at the end. Um, what was that? I heard someone say something earlier that really tickled me about it. Um, someone said, I don't know what it was a podcast I was listening to, like a lesser podcast. And someone said, oh, he's got a look at him. He's got a face like someone just cut his gas off. <laughs> that was a brilliant line. It's um, a very specific face. Um, <laughs> they'd have to, they'd, he'd have to be informed that his gas had been turned off as well, because it's like if he just turned his gas off, then he probably wouldn't notice straight away. <laughs> so it'd have to be someone say, "I've just turned your gas off." So, oh. Yeah, yeah, because it would, it would be the face would either be, yeah, because you know, he's got a face like someone's just turned his gas off. So you like you said, if, if you were like. I mean, I have, I have, don't have gas. I just have electricity. So you'd be sitting there, and then you'd either be like turning your hob on, and like with it, with that letter. Yeah. It'd be like a slight I, frown. Yeah, like, oh, is this something going on? You is it? Is this not catching? But then, if, <laughs> but then you'd be sitting there, and you, oh, you'd just be watching TV, and then you'd have a phone call, and you'd pause it, and hello, I said, oh, this is British gas. We just cut your gas off, and then that oh, face then. That's that the sort face. Of, that's, yeah. That's it's it. all, thinking about it. It's always going to be like a slightly confused frown as you try to mentally work back to the root cause of what, <laughs> why your gas is. Yeah. So it's the same face. You are right. It's just a slight frown. Right, it's the same face. Right. Um, um. Have I talked about eight bit Christmas? Yeah. I can't. Remember. Oh my God! No. This, but this is um, this is uh, one we were sent specially from Warner Brothers to cover. So I'm glad that you did watch it. Yes. Yes, I did watch it. Um, now, I just want to say for any representatives of Warner Brothers listening to this, um, because I do have to send the link to the podcast to, to, to prove that we covered it. I gave it to Rupert because he loves Christmas films and eight bits of like video game things. I mm. didn't give it to him because it looked like a load of total shit. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's not total shit. Really? No, it is. Oh. Um, <laughs> so it's this is uh yeah it's it's available on sky now i think over here um so it's just released obviously it's a christmas movie so but i don't know if if anyone's got a particular hankering to watch yet another christmas movie then knock yourself out it's by it's a comedy by uh, from michael dows who also made the likes of goon and more recently stuba uh, so in the present day, Neil Patrick Harris is hanging out with his daughter at Christmas and he digs out his old NES, his old Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, she wants a smartphone. Um, 
So he decides to tell the story of how desperate he was for a, for a Nez back in the day um, as a way of kind of teaching her about, you know, you don't always get what you want. So we cut back to 1988 to see this story unfold. Um, and it does start quite strongly. He, he could have had a master system then, really. I know, right? Um, could have done. It starts quite strongly uh, because... The daughter immediately starts questioning details about his story. And we see these minor details switch in real time. Like, for example, he's riding along on his bike and she's uh, and she's asking all these questions and he's not sure exactly. So his like bike helmet will change color and stuff like that. I thought that was quite a nice little touch. That conceit is completely forgotten instantly. So uh, you, I thought you, before you, Karen, I thought you were going to say that she kind of like strips apart his nostalgia to, to the exactly. reality, which would have been quite funny. That would have been amazing. That would have been so cool if if the whole thing had been like her actually picking holes in his anyway. It's not that. So so that's forgotten. And instead we get a kind of standard nerdy 80s school kids tale. Usual things, you know, like kids on bikes, you kids using walkie talkies, you got the fat annoying kid, you got the oddball teachers, you got over strict parents, you've got bland synth and the obvious eighties pop hits. Um and the central thesis of the film seems to be uh, an attack on the modern sense of entitlement and the comparative ease and comfort with which modern kids operate in the world. Whereas kids of a former generation had to learn a work ethic to get what they want, um, because ultimately uh, this kid in 1988, ultimately his gang has to go on a road trip to obtain the NES because they can't just order it on the internet, obviously. It's a strangely paced film, I found, because there's lots happens, but it's very episodic and inconsequential, like a, almost like a sketch type thing. Like all Christmas films, then. It, it feels really slow, because you're waiting for the film to settle on a central plot, and then you finally realise it's just a bunch of skits based around this kid's desire for a nez. And so it it's, does owe a bit to... a christmas story the 80s film which was about this kid who wanted an air rifle for christmas and he it had a similar structure of loosely connected like vignettes rather than this linear plot line fine whatever once you get used to it so there are slapstick sequences there are drawn out sketches there are fart jokes there's an endless stream of like remember that type 80s references none of it's very funny and it's far too self-aware to be charming uh like there's one bit where this kid they're at this ice rink and someone falls over on the ice and this kid says to his friends objectively i know that's hilarious but i don't have the heart to laugh and i thought well kids don't talk that way and no they don't and and it made me think well kids don't talk that way so it's stupid and unfunny but also and poorly observed but also you think about the best 80s kids movies in fact they did talk and act like kids and that was what was charming about them like you think about like the goonies or something like that that was what was captured so well in those movies was that they did act and talk like kids anyway so they don't capture that at all you got the voice father sorry go on I remember you saying that about kids on talk like that. You, when someone falls over the ice skating and someone stops and makes a sarcastic comment next to them. I grew up in Kilvanith, which is a Welsh mining town, and um, I remember once one of our one of the guys in our group said that he went ice skating with his younger sister, and everyone just silently kicked him to death. 
uh, and kept on kicking to the point he just looked like a load of dirty snow that someone had spilt a slush puppy on. <laughs> so, no, that's not how kids talk. Different times. <laughs> More innocent times. Um, the boy's father is played by Steve Zahn. And <laughs> how does he look these days? Is he buff for no reason? Yeah, he's like sort of stocky, good, good, kind good. of short and stocky and buff. I, I mean, I don't mind Steve Zahn, but his no, character no. in this is wildly inconsistent. Like, he's really stern and dictatorial. <laughs> Much like his one career. One. Yeah. He's really stern sometimes, but then he's really kind and gentle the next. And then there are other scenes, just for Comedy Valley, where he'll like be chasing his son through like a mall, and he'll just punch a stranger in the face. And it's like, it's just not, that's not funny. But it, anyway... This, the eight-bit part is obviously to do with gaming, right. and the depiction Christ, of. Ga- I actually forgot about that. Yeah, okay. The depiction of gaming in this film is a mixed bag, I would say. On one hand, they do have real footage of like Rampage and Paperboy, fine, mm-hmm. but then there's at least one scene where they have this made-up fighting game. It's clearly made-up fighting game, which looks 16-bit basically, and it has very clear digitized speech, and it's like, mm, well, that just isn't a real thing, and it doesn't ring true to the period at all and then you've got this whole subplot about these concerned parents taking part in protests right claiming that violent video games will corrupt their children but again this is 1988 right and that doesn't ring true at all either because the whole moral panic about violent video games was something that occurred very much in the 90s specifically about like moral combat and stuff yeah, yeah. and i mean at a stretch i suppose you could say that in the 80s there were some concerns about the effects of video games on children but that was early 80s and i and i honestly think that for most people for most older people gaming was pretty much dismissed as a fad at that point so i really think that that whole thing is just not it's just this kind of generalized nostalgia for nothing in particular and it doesn't so it doesn't hit the spot it doesn't it's not well observed comedy that's my point overall then i'd still say it's better than pixels because at least, I mean, Pixels harboured this very unpleasant underlying hostility towards gaming, which I hated. But I just don't know who this is for, this 8-bit Christmas. Because this, it seems to be for 40-something gamer dads who want a vague 80s nostalgia hit, I suppose. And are possibly seeking some very gentle comedy, an extremely sentimental father-son story along the way. Um, but I, I don't know. It it tired me out, and I feel like it made me feel like eighties nostalgia is pretty much done at this point. At least this particular perspective of the eighties, which has become very cliched and lazy. And uh, I think, yeah, I don't, it's, it, it's, it's never something that I was pretty much my, my whole thing of watching a. I like it when things are uh, set in the eighties or hark back to the eighties and they're kind of a bit grungy and grimy um like i like the gate where it's just a lot of people pissing around with tracking on vhs tapes in a video store that sort of thing Fine, yeah but when it's just this yeah when it's this looking back as if it was this golden era i just think mm, i was yeah. there so uh, but yeah i think i suppose though you saying that all those things about this film i i did think it actually does sound like <laughs> Um, like one of the better Christmas films, because at least because you were talking about um, who is this for? Is it for Game of Dads? Do you remember that film we both watched with Scott Adkins, um, where he goes into the 
it's like a, it's a video game and every time it cuts oh, back it's like they're just like hammering buttons and and yeah. and you think surely if they someone says we're going to make a get a, a film about a video game like get someone in who knows something about it so at least that part is of value to the viewers who are going to be watching yeah. the film for that reason at least make it like make sense and tie in and yeah it just seems like a real mistake because it's just such a cheap way just get someone who understands like 8-bit games and say yeah they, it would look and sound like this and it would at least have that level of authenticity to it so, but honestly sure. i think your idea for the film was better anyway the, the whole thing about her deconstructing his nostalgia i think that would have been a better film but it wouldn't it wouldn't be overly christmasy was it it's like it starts off with him just oh my god my old nez oh my god look at that oh bayou billy oh the game like cliffhanger the mega drive where you can't actually make contact with another enemy before they hit you first oh fantastic and then and he says oh, i remember and they're like and then she just like breaks it down systematically until all of his all of the sort of yeah the, the soft edge has been taken off and he realizes he had just had a really harsh childhood and at the end he just hangs yeah. himself with the rf cable yeah <laughs> Which would have been a more accurate representation of this kind of raw 80s nostalgia anyway, because, I mean, let's face it, when you do go back and play a lot of these games, it it is a crushing disappointment and it does not give you the feeling that you had at the time because most of them are so bad. Yeah, we've all played the port of Terminator 2 on the Nezru, but... And in the arcade... Yeah, it'd be even funny. The only way the film could be more depressing is if he made his like if he held his daughter at knife point and made her eat loads and loads of like peanuts and cake. So when he like hung himself over the beam, he tied it to her ankle so she could like weigh him down the other side, so they could like look at each other upside down as he died. Like, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got more to say on 80s nostalgia with my next choice but you uh, would you like to speak about Die Hard I would Please. The, the two two reasons I watched the Die Hard film series one is that um, it was from the Indiana Jones the Crystal Skull because if you remember I watched the Indiana Jones films for the first time yeah. pro- properly and not just watched them on TV done my nans over years and, and uh, the fourth one came on and I thought it did fit it did sort mm-hmm. of fit in, fit into it and I, and I enjoyed it it was clearly one of the weakest ones but but I enjoyed it as a film. Um, and there's a there's a band I like called the Lemonheads, and Evan Dando, the the main man behind the Lemonheads, hasn't released uh, an album of, of original material since 2006. And I was it's a running joke with the other two people in my band, Tom and Al, um, and who they love a band called Tool, and they also hadn't released yes. an album since 2006. Recently, Tool did, and all Evan Dando has done is released two covers albums, one called Varshons which was produced by someone called Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers. And I listened to it, and a lot of the album to me sounded like people pissing around. And then they released Varshans 2 in 2019, and I didn't even bother listening because I thought, just stop pissing around with covers and release an original album. If you'd written one song a year, you'd have 15 songs, you lazy bastard. And um, and then I, I thought, no, but this, this anger needs to subside because it's okay to just, like, you know, you've, you've watched the Indiana Jones films, and you know, let's just just relax and just, just go back and listen to it. And I bought it on vinyl. And Varshon's Two is is a lovely country rock album. Anyway, thinking that I thought mm. I remember my version of your Crystal Skull is the Die Hard Five because uh, I think it's called A Good Day to Die Hard because yeah. I love I love the films uh, the first three and 
the fourth time I remember watching it, it was the film that made me stop going to the cinema in 2007. That was the last time I stopped going to the cinema regularly. That I'm not I'm I'm not paying this much money to be to be entertained at this level. Um, and that was that. That was like 14 years ago. Uh, and yeah, and then and I thought when a good day did I come on, I thought I'm not even going to bother. And I haven't I literally haven't even really thought about it since 2013. Uh, and the, what kicked this off was. Uh, I was watching Die Hard around Christmas time, obviously, with my son. And Faye came in and she said, oh, you're watching Die Hard. And I said, that's really impressive that you looked at the screen then. And it was just on like a random, you know, sequence from the Nakatomi Plaza. And I mm. thought, God, it's so it's so ingrained into people's consciousses now yeah. that it's just like any frame of this film. Any shot. Yeah. yeah. And I liked that. <clears throat> and I made the joke and I said, oh, yeah, you know, Axel and I were going to watch all the Die Hard films, the entire series from start to finish. One, two and three. <laughs> and uh, and then I thought this do- I, and I laughed I laughed so hard about a joke that I went inside out and vomited on my own bones and insides. But I thought, well, I there's no reason. I maybe I just need to you know like Crystal Skull, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I just need to watch the fourth one just without suck it up. With, without that level of expectation. So I'm gonna quickly go through the whole series if that's cool. Yeah, that's um, fine. Um, so yeah, so Die Hard is is luckily the weapon or bulletproof or the nice guys it's it just a perfect film you know mm. like like kiss, kiss it's just you watch it and you know everything that happens every character has their moment um every musical cue every shot every action sequence no matter how brief it's all fits into this one of this this and and then of course uh it goes into the second film which is set in an airport, and you've got the whole familial thing where he's again after Bonavidelia, got Richard Atherton in there, William Atherton, sorry. And it, you've got, and what I realised by the time I got to the third one is you've got a strong nemesis, you've got some personal... Um, animus? It, sorry? Personal animus? Yep, I don't know what that word means. We'll go with it. Um, and I'll edit it so I look it up and then say, yes, Rupert, animus. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's some personal uh, investment, I was going to say, the word okay. I was looking for, you know, in, in what was going on. And and this is key, right? And this becomes more and more key as, as the series goes on. You've got these sub-characters that, are, that aren't really necessary to the plot, but like really give it colour. Like in the first one, um, you know, you've got... Um, uh, Hart Bachner. I, the fact that I know his name's Hart Bachner, I can't remember his name. Ellis, you know. Um, and you've got Reginald L. Johnson. Uh, and so you've got that camaraderie, that level of camaraderie. The second film, you've got the, um, I've forgotten his name now, but the, the guy who, um, with the moustache who is helping him around. Basically, the, the, oh, the guy yeah. who runs the airport and the guy yeah, who's yeah. the te- tech guy for the airport. And then you've got Marv, who's the janitor for the airport. And, and you know, and, and you've got all these like, little, little, connections these like little beautiful little connection lines of dialogue little smirks each other just glad you're all there to help each other out there's this sort of sense of community to it the third one you've got um uh i really this is when i when i watch entire series of films i admit i should probably start taking notes the third film you've got like walter cobb uh the guy who i thought was william forsyth for ages and then lambert um and and you know all the people you know the guy who takes the kids yeah. out of the school all these little side plots um and obviously Samuel L. Jackson as this as this sort of sidekick and there's a lot of banter there like good banter not like in Hitman, the wife of the hitman's bodyguard or whatever it is um and I was watching these films and these are films I've seen a lot over the years and and all these of course watching it with a critical eye realizing yes 
You need, it's not just about John McClane. It's, you know, the wrong, the guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's about these, these little characters having these little worlds yeah. and like chancing it through this. So many elements that make, really bring these films to life and make them timeless. And then I thought, right, now I'm going to watch Live Free, Die Hard. And is that number four? This is number four, 2007. 4.0. So, so, yeah, sorry. Well, live Free or Die Hard, 4.0, Die Hard 4, whatever you want to call it. And this is more, more of a techie one. So you know if you're instantly you're going to get the whole John McClane, you know, a guy out of his time sort of thing. And you've got Justin Long. And bear in mind, I think Justin Long, and correct me if I'm wrong, was the one in Jeepers Creepers. He was, yes. <laughs> so, I forgot he was in this film. So I, yeah, this is this is the thing, right? How many times have you seen this film? Uh, probably just once, to be honest. Yeah, I watched it at the cinema and I was disheartened. Yeah, and I and I think I think the problem is that the, the the third film, Die Hard with a Vengeance, was 1995. By the way, as an aside, Die Hard has got a really strong um, video game connections. Like all of the games, especially like Vendetta on the PC, um, sorry, uh, Nakatomi Plaza on the PC, and Die Hard Vendetta, they're all pretty solid. Um, you've got Justin Long in this as a hacker that is helping Bruce Willis. You've got a, a, a cameo by bloody Kevin Smith. Uh, and Jesus. you've got Mary Elizabeth Winstead as his as his daughter, Timothy Oliver as the bad guy. These are all people that I didn't know in 2007, and mm. now and, and now I, I watched it and and I was at least oh I know who that is I can place them in my sort of mental IMDb now whenever they came on screen. Um, Maggie Q is pretty by the way. Spoiler alert. So the fourth film. She's in the Protege. This is that, that, that amazing film film of the week for you. Yeah. <laughs> the film I'm not even going to discuss, but yes, she is she is pretty and she does kick ass. So yeah. So I just wanted to say that with this with with this film, the the elements are still there of the Die Hard series. If you watch it now, if you watch one two three and then you check this on, it fits as a Die Hard film. It, okay. it is it's not it's it's a lot more drivey um, because you know whereas in, in the other films it's much more quickly paced in this. A lot of it is set at night and you realize how much time it's like, Oh, we've got to get to Baltimore. Oh, now we've got to get down to, I don't know, Sonoma County or whatever. And a lot of the film is just him like driving around chatting to Justin Long and Justin Long saying, Oh, you're a hero. And him saying, yeah, I know. I'll tell you about it. I'm always there. I'm a rock star. And you think this is the problem, isn't it? Because it's not, it's not John McClane getting by on the skin of his ass. Now it's just him. Um, almost be acknowledging that he's a reluctant hero, which is right. a major character shift, really. Instead mm-hmm. of dealing with things moment by moment, it's him just feeling like, yeah, I'm this reluctant hero, but you know, but I get shit done. And and you're like, that's uh, and he says this himself to Justin Long. Justin Long's character is irritating as Jack Spratt at the start of this film, and it's really interesting because I don't know if it's Justin Long just a really good actor or if it, it just um, echoed my experience of watching the fourth film again without such high expectations because by the end of the film he he, as a character kind of won me over and I found him quirky and charming as opposed to just irritating Um, I remember quite enjoying him in Drag Me to Hell but then I quite like that film so it's another one I need to watch it's another one I need to watch Jeepers Creepers is not a good film just going to say that Jeepers Creepers 3 is certainly not a good film I can say that (laughs) Or four or two. Um, and so you've got like Kevin Smith, even he didn't irritate me as much as, as he did the first time around. Timothy Oliphant, whom I fancy and whom co-owns the bar with Matthew McConaughey, he is, is, you know, 
in this, he's he's a weak bad guy, but at least he is what he's doing is like is is of a seriously large threat and like trying to they call it a fire sale where he's trying to just close everything down to prove a point. So does it just sorry just on the topic of Timothy Oliphant, does it? I mean, obviously you didn't really know him back then. I mean, I don't he'd been. I guess he'd been in Deadwood and. Maybe the crazies, or did that come later? Anyway, he was a bit of an unknown entity back then, and he was known for serious roles. Now we know that he's actually really funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that change your perception of the performance at all? Does it look like he's almost, you know, like he's got a bit of tongue-in-cheek in this, or is it is he just... No, it's bland. It's really bland. Okay. It's really boring. But it's, it's, there's no, there's no humour in it at all. Um, when it comes to the end... Um, it's fine. The, the, ending, the ending is fine. And, and it kind of wraps up nicely. And I've got to say that the fourth film, I thought, you know what? I would happily watch that again as, as part. It's a weak, it's clearly the weakest entry, but it is part of the Die Hard franchise. In my mind, it still feels like a Die Hard film. And I, know, and I know we've discussed, I think, offline that a lot of the Die Hard films weren't written to be Die Hard films like the the third one, like the first one, Bruce Willis was like, you know, the, the last choice or whatever. The third one was meant to be a lethal weapon film. I'm sure the fourth and fifth one were written to be uh, written for other reasons. And they just got twisted around into being diehard films. So really quickly, I just wanted to talk about a good day to die hard because this is, <laughs> this is, this is an extremely bad film. Um, and it wasn't like I was riding high off Die Hard 4.0. I was just pleasantly surprised. Uh, two quick things about 4.0 as well is uh, the whole thing about him being this reluctant hero and it, the set pieces. If you think about the set pieces from, say, the first one where he puts mm-hmm. that, you know, the MP5 submachine gun falls down the lift shaft as the thing breaks or when he's like wedging his gun there to stop the vent as he crawls through the fan. In mm-hmm. this one, he's the whole thing about him throwing a car at a helicopter. Mm-hmm. Um like it, if if he if he'd done it by accident, it would have been a fun sequence. But when you watch yeah. it, he's driving down there and he jumps out of the car. The car would have just carried on going straight. So mm. it's like it goes up an invisible ramp up to the helicopter, and then they acknowledge how cool he is, and you think that wouldn't happen. And uh, later on, then in the film, he does something else which is just ridiculous. And it, it's almost like he's smiling at himself as opposed to just thinking, "Bloody hell, I was lucky." Uh, again minor shifts but quantum shifts <laughs> and uh, yeah and quite telling shifts in his character because the whole thing about him is he's he's such a kind of everyman type cop he's not really a superhero at all and so as soon as he does things which would be quite clearly probably impossible for a regular person to do then it it breaks that it breaks that kind of uh, illusion doesn't it yeah because essentially everything he does in like the original films, to an extent, till the third one, it gets a bit silly. But certainly in the original, like he's not really doing anything completely out of the ordinary. He's just very determined and stubborn and kind of a bit of a brute, really. And all, yeah, and also a bit, of, a bit, bit smart of a as well. bit of a luddite. But if you think yeah. about the, even up to the third one, um, where you know when he thinks the bombs are going off, his first reaction is to like tell the crowd to get away and try to yeah. save as many people as he can at, at, at the cost of his own life, at the drop of a hat, right? Yeah. Die Hard 5, <laughs> yippee Mother Russia, which basically shows the level that you're working at with, with Jane yeah. Courtney as his son. So you've got the fourth one where Mary Elizabeth Winstead is his daughter and he's, you know, she's off in uni and she kind of reconnects with him. At the start of this one, 
it's so poorly plotted. It's so poorly plotted. Um, I could do an hour on this film, I think, quite constantly chatting about it. So, it, which is ironic because it's the shortest of them. It's like an hour and thirty-eight, and you know, you, I knew it was going to be bad just looking at the length for some reason. Mm. Um, he is just—it starts off, and he is just in the firing range, wearing quite a cool brown leather jacket, just shooting. And someone comes in and says, "Oh, hey, Grandpa," you're like, yeah, "Okay, lazy." Mm. Uh, uh, you know, that's probably no, not how two policemen would talk to each other, been working together for years. And uh, and then he says, "Oh, yeah, we've got this." profile on your son played by jay courtney um jack and he is oh we find him he's out in russia and he's been charged with killing uh killing someone involved in the russian mafia the plot is boring really boring and perfunctory mm-hmm. where it's you know bruce willis goes out there and uh is it turns out there's like a double cross and his son actually works for the cia and then they're trying to reconnect mm-hmm. and all this stuff right there's a bit at the start where he's trying to just just meet up with his son. That's all he's doing is trying to meet up with his son to say, what have you been doing? You know, your mother and I worried about you, even though Bonabadila hasn't been in this since the second film. And he there's a bit where he sees his son um, in a car chase on on a, on, a, on, a, on like a motorway in Russia. And it's like a layer down, if you know what I mean. It's like a flyover. Mm-hmm. And he just drives through the, the barrier, the concrete barrier and just trounces over about 40 cars drives off the end and, and just drives off after them and i thought you would have killed dozens of people then you would have <laughs> killed dozens of people and and, and it's the, again that shift from guy in the wrong mm-hmm. place to just effectively just this like untouchable superhero that just can do whatever and just get out of it and there are multiple scenes in this film where he's talking to jay courtney as they as they bond bond really poorly because he starts off calling him john uh, instead of dad but then it's sometimes he's calling him McLean. And I thought, well, that's just your surname as well. This doesn't like <laughs> you'd call him John out of disrespect. And you thought, I know at the end you're going to call him dad, but you wouldn't call him McLean because that's just your surname. Anyway, um, it's just bad writing. And it goes on and on. And it, it, and the start of this film, uh, John McLean gets in a cab and there's this like Russian guy who's really animated and really kind of friendly and charming. It doesn't charge mm. him for this journey and stuff. And I thought, oh, he is going to be. The you know the sidekick, the, one of the guys we bump yeah. into as all the, the action comes together. The Marv character, yeah. Nope, he's just someone for you know. Even though he's like really pleasant and polite, for him to roll his eyes at like fucking dirty Russian scum, and make a load of jo- and then just just get out. And there's no in this film. There's no celebration of Russian culture. You never you know. There's no swooping shots of of, of key. Um, you know the cinematography isn't there for these, the, the landmarks or whatever. It's just there for him to blow stuff up. And just make like Russian jokes. At one point, he hits another car, and a guy comes towards him, and starts talking in Russian, saying, "Why do you hit me?" And he just punches him in the face and says, "Speak English, asshole!" And then nicks his car and drives off. And you think, you, mm-hmm. it's it's like they don't know what the character John McClane is. Um, and it's like the, it's like they're setting it, they're putting it in this setting so that for we as the audience, I supposedly won't care about the collateral damage and stuff, or what the kind of things that he says to people, because. Because they're for, they're dirty foreigners or something. Yeah, they're foreigners. Like, they're, wow. Yeah, it's, it really just pushes them to one side, and um, and, and he just and I realised he sounds like a real buffoon. Um, because there is this, you've got Jay Courtney explaining this. There's a scene where Jay Courtney's been wounded and they're sat down there. So this is his son that he's recently reconnected with, and his son has got a piece of iron like rebar stuck in what appears to be his kidney, and he just yanks it out, and he's obviously having a rough time, and they're being chased by the Russian mafia, and. Uh, 
and they, they clearly should just get out of there and get home if 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 this is a father son relationship you know which which is what the film is really trying to push you know the, the, this this familiar love and and you've got you've got Jay Courtney trying to be really dutiful talking about his job to see we've got to finish the mission and then every time it cuts to John John McClane he's just saying ah oh, we got to kill all the bad guys we got to shoot the scumbags I thought you just sound like a twat. You just sound like a childish teenage twat. So like, oh, let's just shoot all the baddies, and and it's like, oh, it's like, are you so thick you're not grasping that like the the brevity of the situation at all? Um, and then it ends up in this really tedious, I think it's in Chernobyl or something at the end, and it's just them leaping forty feet off like exploding buildings, and yeah. you think mm-hmm. it's just total bollocks. And then at the end, he gets off the plane with his son. And Mary Elizabeth Winsett, so he's reunited with his son and daughter for the first time, seemingly since they were children. And they were so lazy, they couldn't even have a moment where they all hug and just say a few words. They couldn't be bothered to do that. So it just shows them smirking at a sunset and walking as really choosy music plays over the top. So there's not even that like walking at the sunset. There's not even a nice moment. It's like the whole film is so lazy that it's just like whatever we can get away with lowest common denominator. It it was a bad film. It's a very bad film. It's even if these were different characters, this would be one of the things I'd say. Oh, this is like an ex wrestler doing something in bloody Romania on industrial estate. It's that level of film. It's one of the worst films I've ever seen. Partly because of just the intrinsic quality of what it is. It's just a bad action movie, an expensive, loud, brash, unpleasant bad action movie, poorly made. But on top of that, you've got that extra layer of this kind of weight of history behind it of this kind of beloved character who was uh relatable and kind of roguishly charming um yeah and believable and and i remember it was that scene in die Hard five where he starts shouting at the russian guy telling him to speak english and stuff that that was the bit that really stayed with me because i thought that's that's when I realised this is just not John McClane. This is just a different character. And I suppose it goes with everything else, all the collateral damage and stuff, just not caring about any of that stuff. And then, like you say, going if you go back to the original movie where it's all about his desperation, you know, it's it becomes desperation to save his wife, obviously. But before that, it's desperation just to do his job and, and save the people in the building. And that's it. It's quite simple. And, like... He, you know, he puts his life on the line. He's he, willing to sacrifice himself to save them. But it's like, where is that character? Where's that character gone? And it was, you know, it was pretty consistent through two and three as well. So, yeah, like it even the little bits where he's just diving away and they think there's a bomb in a bin and he's just pushing everyone away, saying get down, get down and stuff, and throwing himself on a train, you know, to save other people. That yes, dis- that disappears, and then that's replaced even in the fourth one. There's a scene where he's just constantly hurling racial abuse at Maggie Q as they're fighting. And then he, he, cr- he crashes into her and they go down a lift shaft. And it's this really, really poor bit of editing in that where she they're fighting inside a car that's like falling down a lift shaft. And he jumps up and grabs a wire and turns around. And she sort of really slowly and clunkily falls in this car down to the bottom and it explodes. And she just dies in a ball of flame. And then he just starts really celebrating. Um, 
but mm. it, and I thought that's really bad editing because it's not like he's by the he's just like laughing at her, like pointing and laughing. Again, when the John McClane character would be concentrated about just getting out of there. Yeah, moving on you know, to the you, next thing. Yeah, like again, and, and actually, a lot of the time, John McClane, the true John McClane, he'd struck fight with someone, struggle, and then you know defeat them. But actually, his first response is just catching his breath. Yeah, just just disbelief. <laughs> just but like Jesus, that was from, really lucky. Yeah. Yeah, like when you think about some of his duels in the first three movies, you know, like that first fight with the. The guy uh, wearing matching grey jogging bottoms. Yes yes, 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 yes. And like how lucky he knows how lucky he is, and it's just like he's just knackered from the, yeah. that one. Knackered fight. from the first fight. Yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, just just really quickly before we end on this, I think that's um yeah the the fourth film where I said he was he's basically seen as he's a reluctant hero. In the fifth one, he's just seems to just just accept that he's immortal and and he's just yeah. almost a cartoon character. Um, I'm just gonna say a few things now before you move on to yours. I'm done. Um. Mm. This is a Die Hard 5, uh, Good Day to Die Hard. Skip Woods is the writer. John mm. Moore is the director, okay? So what I'm okay. going to do is I'm going to do Skip Woods first, then John Moore, and I'm just going to read out the films that they've they've been involved with, right? Thursday, Swordfish, Live Free or Die Hard, Hitman, X-Men Origins, Wolverine, The A-Team, A Good Day to Die Hard, Sabotage, Hitman Agent 47, Behind Enemy Lines, Flight of the Phoenix, the remake of The Omen, Max Payne, A Good Day to Die Hard, and IT with Pierce Brosnan, which is total and utter shit. <laughs> Deary me. So that's the level you're working at. These are the people they trusted with their beloved franchise. That's astonishing. Who comes up with these ideas to hire these specific people? Anyway, so yes, so basically, original trilogy, great. The fourth film, decent, not too offensive. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it fits in. It's, it's. A, I'm sure, it, like people would see it as a crystal skull, but I thought, no, this is fine. It feels like a diehard film. Yeah. And fifth film, I think we're in agreement. There's just. It's <sighs> genuinely like one of the. Yeah, I, are you saying one of the worst films like, with with its heritage? One of the worst films I've ever seen. I think with its heritage, with the money behind it, with the stars in it, it just. There's no excuses. The way it strips, the way, like, like scene by scene, strips all the goodness and history out of a character is. It's almost like it's not a film; it's just a character assassination. Yeah, and that's what really bothers me about it because he's such a and it and it because it genuinely does harm in that case, you know, because it's like a continuation of something and it it makes you look back on that beloved character through different eyes. It's like oh. Well, if he's capable of that, then was he always that way? <laughs> Surely, if they like that, that's the character arc. You know, if you think about that, if you wrote that on a whiteboard and you did like an arc and then you wrote all the all the the points of his characteristics, it would be so depressing. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to talk about a sequel then. I'm going to talk about Wonder Woman 1984, which is on okay. Sky now, and this is a 2020 superhero movie sequel to the 2017 film which was also directed by patty jenkins and the plot here involves gal gadot uh in the titular year she's working as some kind of high-level historian or archaeologist or something not quite clear this 
desperate businessman played, played by Pedro Pascal gets hold of this magical stone which gives the user one wish which will come true so he instantly finds this loophole right Pedro Pascal and he his one wish is to make himself this magical stone turn himself into the magical stone so anyway so therefore he can grant wishes to other people so he can he effectively manipulates other people to get them to wish for stuff that's going to make him more wealthy and powerful that's the idea meanwhile steve trevor played by chris pine has come back to life um after you know the original film come back to life in quantum leap form so he's basically embodying someone else i don't know why but that's just what it is um but anyway uh wonder woman she sees him as chris pine because of, she sees his spirit or something anyway so there's this really long-winded love story element which for some reason involves wonder woman losing her powers gradually as she's around trevor steve trevor again not quite sure why so she ends up having to decide whether it's decide between love or saving the world this whole aspect right of this tragic love story um it really exposes gal gadot's limitations as an actor really does it's it's, it's bad i think the core problem with this film is just a staggeringly terrible script like really bad script really poorly paced mm. uh it's extremely verbose like the running t- runtime is well over two hours it's it's really verbose but at the same time utterly useless at explaining ever- anything so they'll talk and talk characters go on and on and then it will suddenly lurch into some new event some new location for no clear reason and the character motivations are really unclear especially with regard to Kristen wiggs character i haven't even mentioned her yet but she uh, like the basic superpowers in this film are just not explained properly there's very little explained properly in fact like why is wonder woman losing her powers because of her proximity to chris pine i don't know uh, why is pasco pedro pascal's face going moldy i think he's turning to stone i guess because he's turning into the stone why is Kristen wig put on a cat costume and painted her face with children's party makeup genuinely seems to happen in this film why is Kristen Wiig even in this movie? Why does Chris Pine look so unwell? He just looks ill. And and also, Chris Pine's character, obviously Steve Trevor, he, he flew like what biplane in the previous movie or whatever. He's from a different era. Now, he, in this modern era, in 1984, he can suddenly fly like a modern jet fighter. How? How would that be? In fact, why are we even in 1984? Like, where? where's that from? There's a scene where Pedro Pascal's character takes control of worldwide TV signals to make a big speech to everyone in the world, basically. And he is streaming, right? He's streaming his big speech to, like, Apple II and pet computers, right? This is 1984. He's streaming to computers in that time. Green screen say. computers. That wouldn't that wouldn't happen, Rupert. It's staggering. Like the production design is just appalling. It's like the most gaudy and fetishized version of the eighties. Like it's an eighties Halloween party. And it's like it's constant, like, oh, remember bum bags, you know, remember workout videos, remember arcades, yeah. 
that's the worst. That's the worst. Oh, it's just so. It's observational comedy. It's pointing at things and saying, "Remember that." It's lazy. Yeah, really lazy. I mean, there's one bit where they go into an arcade, obviously, and. They've got like these arcade machines and like the one in the foreground, the main one in front of us, because there's someone shooting a gun, is um, it's Operation Wolf. And it's like, this is 1984. Operation Wolf, there's no way. I don't even have to look it up. There's no way Operation Wolf was out in 1984. I mean, I know oh. it seems like a nerdy thing to notice, but it makes you realise like how, how lazy impressive, it is, how lazy it is and how impressive something like Stranger Things, say, was in the way that it set the set up its kind of 80s nostalgia anyway so of course weirdly i don't think there are any 80s pop hits wheeled out for any montages but we do get one of the most obnoxious hans zimmer scores in living memory it's so overwrought and thunderous and it drowns out all the dialogue wonder woman herself is just comes across as whining and ungrateful and entitled and quite weak-willed in this film which is disappointing and I'm not joking. The final battle between her and Pedro Pascal is Pedro Pascal shouting at nothing in a beam of light while Wonder Woman crouches in a corner muttering to herself. Amazing. Um, and and then it has the cheek, the bald-faced cheek, to end with this outrageous redemptive moment, which basically asked us to sympathise with the villain. While the world he ruined literally just burns around him it's <laughs> unbelievable it's such a bad movie and i would have turned it off um but i just felt it got to the point where it was so bad that i thought i i need to watch it all in order that i can talk about it <laughs> to you <laughs> on this podcast oh my god it's this sounds like yeah i mean and i quite liked the first wonder woman i don't i think it's slightly overrated but it was decent you know it was very watchable but this, oh, my God, it's so amateurish. It just looks bad. It's acted poorly. It's so badly written, so poorly paced. And you say, does it, it, it just reveal her limitations as an actor as well? really does, yeah. And I think part of it is because <clears throat> the character is quite poorly written. And it's so unclear, again, to do with, like, why is why are, why are these magical powers occurring why why is this occurring in the first place it's like she doesn't really know either so it's like she's she'll be walking away from him crying or whatever and it's like she's like she just doesn't know her motivation because she probably doesn't understand the script yeah bad movie don't bother that sounds that does sound awful i mean i'm the one of all the um marvel dc films i've watched i haven't seen wonder woman so um it's okay. not like what i was gonna you know, a, a revisit or, or a go to anyway, but um, was it's this right. a sequel I mean, to the original? Yeah, I mean, it's like Wonder Woman was. I think, I think part of the reason it was it's it was overrated is because it was the first decent DC movie in such a long time. Uh, but it, I mean, it's not great, but it's very it is very watchable, and I mean, it's got you know, it's got a nice girl power element to it, so that's cool. I still think Captain Marvel's better, but yeah. I just wanted to say as well that you, where you just said then that the ending of this film is um, uh, Pedro Pascal shouting nothing in the beam of light whilst Wonder Woman just sits hunched in a corner muttering to herself. I know that Transvaal really loves these certain lines where you said 
you know, in this in this um in in this Dirty Harry film, they inject some comedy. Like there's a point where he shoots someone in the back of the balls as they're running up a staircase. <laughs> and the, the end of the French Connection too is a knackered Gene Hackman slowly jogging alongside a slow moving yacht. And uh, the other day I was describing to him uh, a, a game called Kingdoms of Amalur, and I said I was playing it, and at the start of it, I recognised one of the voice actors, and I thought. I, I really recognize that voice, but I can't place it. And he voiced a few characters in the game, and I realized it's the guy, I think his name is Matthew something, who voices Winnie the Pooh. And I said he also voices the main bad guy. So at the end of it, it's just it just sounds like Winnie the Pooh hurling abuse at you from a distant elven realm through a portal. And um, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to mention that because he reminded me of it. But so we all know that like the Wonder Woman isn't going to be your film of the week. And no, Doctor Strange isn't going to be mine. But um, we do know that the next Arkansas is going to be to get from Bonnie Bedelia to, <laughs> to Matt Damon. Well, okay. Um, my film of the week. I mean, my films. Whew, uh, I really haven't enjoyed much this week. <sighs> I mean, I rewatched the gentle. I actually, I forgot to mention this, but I rewatched the gentleman just because I was so disappointed with Wrath of Man, and I questioned my enjoyment. But I did, I do, I do like the gentleman, and He's I do good. like, I do like Hugh Grant doing an impression of Griffith Jones. So funny in that film. Um, Bad Boys for Life, no, I know you liked it. Um, Doctor Strange, no, don't look up, no. Bloodshot and Hitman's wife's bodyguard turned him off. I, I to be honest, I think I'm gonna have to just say that, like. It was just Die Hard. Uh, it was it was it was just watching Die Hard series um, and just I'd say Die Hard four. I mean that's that's how much I'm stretching for a film of the week. It was it because was everyone nice. knows the original trilogy. Whereas I think a lot of people will be on the fence about Die Hard four. Is like, is it as bad as I remember, or no, it, if, or is it is it is it as average as I remember? Yeah, and and to be honest, I think I'd enjoy Die Hard Four a lot more now, given the gap. Yeah. And given the fact that Five has come out and it has turned out to be one of the worst films ever made, so yeah. Yeah, there's really no need to revisit Five. I and mean, if you think about it, I think that's the problem I had is going to the cinema in 2007 with with my fam, my whole family, like to to to, to like because we love Die Hard so much. Twelve years of this pent up quasi-sexual joy at Bruce Willis's main character and then just being just completely like just quacked upon wow. but then watching it watching it just as a film you think no it's fine it's fine it is fine yeah yeah so, and I think I do think yes my newfound respect for Timothy Oliphant now that I realize that he's really funny in like Santa Clara diet and that yes I think I will appreciate him, even if he's not being funny in that film, but at least I'll appreciate him more. Please, Rupert, Santa Clarita. Yeah, so, I think, yeah. I think, um, yeah, with like Mary Elizabeth Winstead and all the little pop-ups in it, it it does, yeah, it does give it a little bit. And knowing that Justin Long's character is, it, there, there is there is a little, a little arc there, a little subtle arc, it does work. It works as a diode film and it works as a decent action film, even if it is weirdly paced in terms of him just like driving around, just saying oh, we've got to go to Baltimore now. Now we've got to go to Omaha. <laughs> now we're off to Ohio. You're like, really? Because I, 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 my geography is terrible. I have no yeah. sense of distance, but this all seems to be taking place in a few hours. It could just be the next street. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I, yeah. The Last Duel is my film of the week. 
because it's really the only good one I've seen. Uh, but yeah, it's very good. Uh, and I, as I say, I do, I do think Bad Boys for Life. I, I enjoyed that more than I thought I would. But The Last Jewel is genuinely like a, a good movie uh, with some unusual casting, but no, it works. It works. And really, Scott's still got it. And he's like mid 80s. It's crazy. It feels just as fresh as, well, well, the duelists from 1977, really. So, very so impressive. This, so, before we end, it's Bonnie Bedelia to Mark, Matt Damon. And I just need you, Rupert, as we, as we do every time, I need you to close your eyes. Mm. And I need you to imagine that you're approaching a lake. And as you approach the lake, a woman comes out of the waters. And you gaze upon her beauty and she looks at you and says, Rupert, I need you to gain an army and travel to Thethfoth to take down Quagaz, the benevolent, an ancient troll god. You'll need to go through the Bridge of Terrors over the Hill of Shit, through the Lake of Boiling Bollocks. And which you'll need to swim through using breaststroke. And then you have to take down this immortal troll god. And you look at it and say, Lady of the Lake, in order to do these things, I'm going to need financing. I'm going to need weapons, armor. I'm going to need an army. I'm going to need time to train them. And she says, fear not, Rupert, for you have this. And she opens her hand and something floats over to your open outstretched hand as you walk across the waters of the center of the lake. And as it lands on it, you look at it and it's a fiver. (laughs) And then you look at the lady of the lake and says, this probably isn't going to be enough. (laughs) And she looks at you and says, don't be a cunt.